0: Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 218. Today's Big Bible Question is a continuation of our discussion from yesterday. What is the abomination that causes desolation? We're also going to be talking about Paul's shaved head. So, hello, friends. Happy Friday to you. I want to tell you that we're going to get into some deep waters today with lots of scripture references and some stuff that may be, um it may be a good idea once you listen to the podcast to come check out our website, BibleReadingPodcast.com. This is episode number 218, and uh I've got extensive notes for you on the page already put up so you can come over and read them. If you somehow get lost along the way, and that's going to be particularly possible today, just come and read and see what you might have missed or see what I might have missed on the transcript of the show. Now, every show pretty much has a almost a word-for-word transcript on the website BibleReadingPodcast.com. Right now, I think we're at 375,000 words plus for the year. That equates to, I don't know, well over a thousand-page book. So, Any of the words on the podcast you want to look up, you can come to BibleReadingPodcast.com and use that handy search bar and find out all we've talked about for this year, if uh, if you have a reason to do such a thing. I do want to ask you before we get too deep, man, it'd be great if somebody would go out and leave a review or two on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts, reviews are a great way to share the show with friends. And if you don't want to do that, just share us on social media. And let's uh, get some other people reading the Bible along with us. So today we finish our discussion of the abomination of desolation. But actually, first, let's tackle an issue related to Acts 18 from yesterday. So friend of the show and friend of the host, Ramal Luap... Yes, I said Ramal Luap hit me up with an interesting observation this morning about Paul's shaving his head, which got me to thinking, what's that all about? Why in the world would the Apostle Paul, as we saw yesterday in Acts 18, shave his head as part of a vow? The guy who was very, very clear that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone is doing some sort of external act of piety? So what gives? Well, let's discuss it, but first I'd better turn on the speculation light in the cabin, buckle your seat belts, and realize we're gonna go through some of the turbulence of guessing at something that the Bible doesn't fully spell out for us, and we're gonna do this twice today, so please remain seated and buckled in until the pilot turns off the light and the speculation is over. As you might know, the Old Testament discusses a vow of consecration called a Nazarite vow. Now, this is a, apparently a voluntary act that some saints of God undertake either for a very long time, like Samuel, Samson, and possibly John the Baptist, or for a short period of time to basically separate themselves from other things and devote themselves to God. Sort of a leaving and cleaving, but a spiritual leaving and cleaving rather than a marital leaving and cleaving. So, number six sort of describes this vow and outlines it for us, noting that it's open to men or women, it's voluntary, and that vow concludes this way, Numbers 6, 18-21, which says, The Nazarite is to shave his consecrated head at the entrance to the tent of meeting, take the hair from his head, and put it on the fire under the fellowship sacrifice. The priest is to take the boiled shoulder from the ram, One unleavened cake from the basket and one unleavened wafer and put them into the hands of the Nazarite after he has shaved his consecrated head. The priest is to present them as a presentation offering before the Lord. It is a holy portion for the priest in addition to the breast of the presentation offering and the thigh of the contribution. After that, the Nazarite may drink wine. These are the instructions about the Nazarite who vows his offering to the Lord for his consecration. In addition to whatever else he can afford, he must fulfill whatever vow he makes in keeping with the instructions for his consecration. So the word Nazarite comes from the Hebrew word netzar, and it means to dedicate or consecrate or separate from something. The Nazarite is dedicating himself to God and separating himself from all other things. Now, I note here that there's no promise or explicit reward attached to a Nazarite vow. The reward is in the consecration, the nearness to God. Now, of more importance to our current question about Paul and his vow and his head shaving, I note that a vow to God is a very important part of the Nazarite process, and the shaving of the head and burning of the hairs at the end of the Nazarite process is very important. We see Paul undertaking both of these elements in Acts 18, possibly also in Acts 21, but we'll discuss that in a day or two. And there seems to be no other act in the Bible that involves both head shaving and vowing at the same time. Now, though we can't be 100% sure because the Bible doesn't specify, I think it's likely that Paul has completed a Nazarite vow in Acts 18, and he is doing exactly what is prescribed in Numbers. With him about to leave for Jerusalem, maybe, just maybe, he's doing such an act to demonstrate to the Jews that he himself is a Jew who honors the Word of God, and and he's doing it in sort of an all-things-to-all-people sort of way. But we don't know, because the Bible doesn't really even give us a hint of Paul's motivation there. Now, the weakness to the Nazarite, Acts 18 theory, is the location of the hair-shaving, the port town of Centuria, which was in the city-state of Corinth, a Greek city. Now, number six commands that the hair shaving would have been done at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Would such a place or its analog been in Centuria? And if so, would it have been an acceptable place being outside of Israel For a Nazarite to perform the ending of their vows as described in Numbers chapter 6? Honestly, I'm not sure. Such a question doesn't appear to be addressed at all in the Old Testament. Now, one other possibility, and this may be a very good possibility, is that Paul was not doing a Nazarite vow exactly, but more of a general vow of consecration and devotion, that was somewhat patterned after a Nazarite vow. And such a vow may be mentioned, maybe in a negative sort of sense in Jeremiah 7, 29, where God says, cut off the hair of your sacred vow and throw it away. This is at a time in Jeremiah 7 where God is is rejecting the people of Israel because they've disobeyed him so much. But he he talks about the the hair of the vow there not using the term Nazarite. In John the Baptist, who apparently lives like a Nazarite, the New Testament never calls him a Nazarite. So it's possible by Paul's time, even by Jeremiah's time, that there were followers of God who were emulating the Nazarite vow, but not doing it exactly as a Nazarite vow. The whole purpose was the consecration, but they weren't themselves taking on the mantle of the Nazarite. Well, I didn't mean to talk quite so much on that topic, but honestly, it's a fascinating act by Paul, and it does raise an issue that we will see again in Acts 21, so maybe this will just serve as an introduction for that discussion. For today, we are reading Judges chapter 15, Jeremiah chapter 28, Acts 19, and Mark 14. Our focus question concludes from yesterday again. What is the abomination of desolation mentioned by Jesus in Mark 13, Matthew 24, Luke 21? and by Daniel in Daniel chapter 9, 11, and 12. Answering the latter part of this question is somewhat easy because the first fulfillment of what Daniel saw in Daniel 9, 11, and 12 happened before the time of Jesus. Now, don't get confused. you got to bear with me here because we're going to wade out into the deep end just a little bit. So let me say that again. The first fulfillment of what Daniel saw in Daniel 9, 11, and 12 happened before Jesus was born. Now, before we discuss that, perhaps we should mention prophecy with a dual fulfillment first. That is dual fulfillment prophecy. Sometimes prophecies in the Bible are fulfilled twice. Once in the near future, usually in the lifetime of the prophet, and more fully in the distant future. Now, we see a great example of this in a very famous passage in Isaiah, where Isaiah 7.13 says, Listen, Isaiah said, Listen, house of David, is it not enough for you to try the patience of men? Will you also try the patience of my God? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. Well, that's a very familiar passage and if i were to ask most christians whom isaiah 7:13 and 14 is referring to they would quickly answer jesus which is the correct answer but it's not the whole answer because if you keep reading the isaiah prophecy you will see that it is first fulfilled in isaiah's lifetime quite possibly by the birth of his own son verse 15 Right after it says, see, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Manuel says, by the time he learns to reject what is bad and choose what is good, he will be eating curds and honey. For before the boy knows to reject what is bad and choose what is good, the land of the two kings you dread will be abandoned. The Lord will bring on you, your people, and your father's house, such a time as has never been since Ephraim separated from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. So yeah, the virgin conceiving prophecy is delivered to King Ahaz and was partially fulfilled in his lifetime, the lifetime of King Ahaz. Now, for more information on dual prophecy, I've got a link here on BibleReadingPodcast.com that you can go read if that's something you're interested in. Just come look at the show notes. Now, similarly, Daniel's prophecy about the abomination of desolation was fulfilled in 167 BC. I should say partially fulfilled because some of what Daniel prophesied that was going to happen with the abomination of desolation didn't happen in 167 BC. But much of it did. And it was fulfilled by a pretty terrible Greek ruler named Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Now the whole story... Of how Antiochus the Fourth Epiphanes set up the abomination of desolation is told in a historical book called First Maccabees, which is considered by most as part of the Apocrypha, and it was written around a hundred to a hundred and fifty years before the time of Jesus. Now, a fun little note about apocryphal books: um, surely most of you have heard of the Apocrypha before. Apocryphal books like 1 Maccabees and several others were originally contained in the 1611 King James Version of the Bible. Now pretty much only Orthodox Bibles and Catholic Bibles contain the Apocrypha, but originally most English Bibles up until around the 1700s, uh, and some even after that, contained the Apocrypha. Now 1 Maccabees chapter 1 tells about The Abomination of Desolation, and I'm going to read part of that chapter. Now, I don't consider First Maccabees to be inerrant, inspired scripture, but I do consider it to be reliable history, and it is most certainly a historical book uh, that was well attested and was written before the time of Jesus. So this is what Maccabees chapter 1, verses 41 through, oh, let's go through 54 says, Talking about Antiochus the Fourth, Epiphanes says, Then the king wrote to his whole kingdom that all should be one people and abandon their particular customs. All the Gentiles conformed to the command of the king, and many Israelites delighted in his religion. They sacrificed to idols and profaned the Sabbath. The king sent letters by messenger to Jerusalem and to the cities of Judah, uh, ordering them to follow customs foreign to their land to prohibit burnt offerings, sacrifices, and libations in the sanctuary, to profane the Sabbaths and feast days, to desecrate the sanctuary and the sacred ministers, to build pagan altars and temples and shrines, to sacrifice swine and unclean animals, to leave their sons uncircumcised, and to defile themselves with every kind of impurity and abomination, so that they might forget the law and change all its ordinances." Whoever refused to act according to the command of the king was to be put to death. In words such as these, he wrote to his whole kingdom. He appointed inspectors over all the people and he ordered the cities of Judah to offer sacrifices, each city in turn. Many of the people, those who abandoned the law, joined them and committed evil in the land. They drove Israel into hide- hiding wherever places of refuge could be found. On the fifth day of the month of Kislev in the year 145 this is 167 BC the king erected the desolating abomination upon the altar of burnt offerings and in the surrounding cities of Judah they built pagan altars. So, about 160 years before the birth of Jesus, Daniel's prophecy was fulfilled in part, and Jesus would have been fully aware of this, just like Americans are fully aware of the Revolutionary War against the British. Therefore, what Jesus is telling us is that prior to his return at some point, such a thing comparable to what Daniel prophesied and what was fulfilled first by Antiochus IV Epiphanes, is going to happen. Now, here's where it gets a little bit more complicated. There are two major schools of thought on this second abomination of desolation. Almost every scholar agrees with 1 Maccabees that the original abomination of desolation happened after Daniel was written and before the time of Jesus when Antiochus IV Epiphanes set up a profane altar in the temple of God and made profane sacrifices on it but the second abomination of desolation the one that jesus is saying is coming there's two major school of thoughts on what that is all about view number one is that the first parts of matthew 24 and mark 13 are referring not to the second coming but to the coming destruction of jerusalem which would have been in the near future when Jesus taught the Olivet Discourse, in because uh, Jesus would have taught the Olivet Discourse at 30 AD, 31 AD, something in that neighborhood, 32 AD, somewhere around that time. And in 70 AD, precisely as Jesus predicted in the Bible, A Roman army surrounded the city of Jerusalem and basically destroyed the whole thing and its temple and slaughtered countless Jews. Now, some believe the abomination of desolation happened then when the commander of the Roman armies or some of his men appeared in the temple and defiled it. Now, I've got a link to more information on that view on the BibleReadingPodcast.com. if you want to check that out. I will say this view is very possible it could fit in with Jesus's teaching of the first parts of Matthew 24. The problem with this view is that we don't really have a historical record that General Titus, who would eventually become Emperor Titus, and he's the one that uh, led the uh, siege of Jerusalem of 70 AD. We don't have a record that he actually engaged in an abominating desolation. However, Josephus, the first century Jewish and Roman historian, does say that Roman soldiers set the temple on fire, which killed a lot of people, and that many bodies were burned and killed near the altar of the temple. Maybe that qualifies as an abominating desolation, but perhaps a bigger problem with this theory that it has already happened and it happened in seventy a d is found in mark thirteen five through eight now, according to the theory that the abomination of desolation would have happened in 70 A.D., what I'm about to read you would have had to have happened before 70 A.D. So verses, this is Mark 13:5 through 8. Jesus told his disciples, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. These things must take place, but it is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginnings of birth pains. Now, if you believe that the second abomination of desolation was fulfilled around the time of the siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD, you must also believe that Mark 13:5 through 8 was also fulfilled at that time. So in other words, many false prophets and messiahs arose after the crucifixion of Jesus and before 70 AD, and there were wars and rumors of wars and kingdoms rising up against kingdoms and earthquakes, etc. You have to believe all of that happened before 70 AD. I'm not sure I go along with that, but I will say it's possible. Now, option number two is that the abomination of desolation is an event that will happen directly before the return of Jesus and is still in the future for us. Some believe that the Antichrist will be the one who leads an army to sack Jerusalem and that he will be the one to set up the abominating desolation, the second one, but actually the Bible doesn't really specify that it's going to be the Antichrist that is going to do this, though the little horn of Daniel 7 through 11 seems to comport with the Antichrist somehow, it doesn't appear that the little horn has anything to do with the abomination of desolation. That seems more in the realm of the King of the North, who Daniel alludes to, but the King of the North doesn't appear to be the same as the little horn, which is a powerful ruler that Daniel prophesies is going to come forth. Now, which solution do I favor? Well, I lean towards option number two, that this event is still in the future, yet to happen, that there will be a group or an army uh, or a particular leader opposed to God in his ways that will somehow seek to set up a terrible defilement in the temple of God in Jerusalem as a way to thumb their noses at Almighty God. This will end up being a tremendous and devastating mistake for whoever does so, being specific beyond that point honestly would probably get us into speculation of a reckless degree, as we are already well outside the bounds of Scripture here. So, let's swim back to a safe place and go ahead and read the rest of our Bible passages. Beginning with Judges, chapter 15, verse 1. Later on, during the wheat harvest, Samson took a young goat as a gift and visited his wife. I want to go to my wife in her room, he said, but her father would not let him enter. I was sure you hated her, her father said, so I gave her to one of the men who accompanied you. Isn't her younger sister more beautiful than she is? Why not take her instead? Samson said to them, this time I will be blameless when I harm the Philistines. So he went out and caught three hundred foxes, took torches, Turned the foxes tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. Then he ignited the torches and released the foxes into the standing grain of the Philistines. He burned the piles of grain in the standing grain as well as the vineyards and olive groves. Then the Philistines asked... Who did this? They were told, It was Samson, the Timnite's son-in-law, because he took Samson's wife and gave her to his companion. So the Philistines went to her and her father and burned them to death. Then Samson told them, Because you did this, I swear that I won't rest until I have taken vengeance on you. He tore them limb from limb and went down and staved in the cave at the rock of Etam. The Philistines went up, camped in Judah, and raided Lehi. So the men of Judah said, Why have you attacked us? They replied, We have come to tie Samson up and pay him back for what he did to us. Then three thousand men of Judah went to the cave at the rock of Etam, and they asked Samson, Don't you realize that the Philistines rule us? What have you done to us? I have done to them what they did to me, he answered. They said to him, We've come to tie you up and hand you over to the Philistines. Then Samson told them, Swear to me that you yourselves won't kill me. No, they said, we won't kill you, but we will tie you up securely and hand you over to them. So they tied him up with two new ropes and led him away from the rock. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came to meet him, shouting. The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully on him, and the ropes that were on his wrists became like burnt flax and fell off. He found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, reached out his hand, took it, and killed a thousand men with it. Then Samson said, With the jawbone of a donkey I have piled them in heaps. With the jawbone of a donkey I have killed a thousand men. When he finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone and named that place Jawbone Hill. He became very thirsty and called out to the Lord, You have accomplished this great victory through your servant. Must I now die of thirst and Fall into the hands of the uncircumcised. So God split a hollow place in the ground at Lehi and water came out of it. After Samson drank, his strength returned and he revived. That is why he named it Hekori Spring, which is still in Lehi today. And he judged Israel 20 years in the days of the Philistines. Jeremiah chapter 28 verse 1. In that same year, at the beginning of the reign of King Zedekiah of Judah, in the fifth month of the fourth year, the prophet Hananiah, son of Atzer from Gibeon, said to me, in the temple of the Lord, in the presence of the priests and all the people, this is what the Lord of armies, the king of the God of Israel says. I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years, I will restore to this place all the articles of the Lord's temple that King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon took from here and transported to Babylon. And I will restore to this place Jeconiah, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all the exiles from Judah who went to Babylon. This is the Lord's declaration, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. The prophet Jeremiah replied to the prophet Hananiah in the presence of the priests and all the people who were standing in the temple of the Lord. The prophet Jeremiah said, Amen. May the Lord do that. May the Lord make these words you have prophesied come true, and may he restore the articles of the Lord's temple and all the exiles from Babylon to this place. Only listen to this message I am speaking to you in your hearing and in the hearing of all the people. The prophets who preceded you and me from ancient times prophesied war, disaster, and plague against many lands and great kingdoms. As for the prophets who prophesied peace, only when the word of the prophet comes true will the prophet be recognized as one the Lord truly has sent. The prophet Hananiah then took the yoke bar from the neck of the prophet Jeremiah and broke it. In the presence of all the people, Hananiah proclaimed, This is what the Lord says. In this way, within two years, I will break the yoke of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon from the neck of all the nations. The prophet Jeremiah then went on his way. After the prophet Hananiah had broke the yoke bar from the neck of the prophet Jeremiah, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Go say to Hananiah, this is what the Lord says, you broke a wooden yoke bar, but in its place you will make an iron yoke bar. For this is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel says, I have put an iron yoke on the neck of all these nations that they might serve King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon and they will serve him. I have even put the wild animals under him. The prophet Jeremiah said to the prophet Hananiah, Listen, Hananiah, the Lord did not send you, but you have led these people to trust in a lie. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. I am about to send you off the face of the earth. You will die this year because you have preached rebellion against the Lord. And the prophet Hananiah died that year in the seventh month. Mark chapter 14, verse 1. It was two days before the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a cunning way to arrest Jesus and kill him. Not during the festival, they said, so that there won't be a riot among the people. While he was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster jar, a very expensive perfume of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured it on his head. But some were expressing indignation to one another. Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they began to scold her. But Jesus replied, Leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a noble thing for me. You always have the poor with you, and you can do what is good for them whenever you want. But you do not always have me. She has done what she could, and she has anointed my body in advance for burial. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them, and when they heard this, they were glad and promised to give him money, so he started looking for a good opportunity to betray him. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed to the the Passover lamb, his disciples asked him, "'Where do you want us to go and prepare the Passover so that you may eat it?' So he sent two of his disciples and told them, "'Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him.' Wherever he enters, tell the owners of the house, the teacher says, "'Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples?' He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready." Make the preparations for us there. So the disciples went out, entered the city, and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. When evening came, he arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining and eating, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be distressed and say to him one by one, Surely, surely not I. He said to them, It is one of the twelve, the one who is dipping bread in the bowl with me. For the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. As they were eating, he took bread, blessed and broke it, gave it to them, and said, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. He said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many." Truly I tell you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will fall away, because it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Peter told him, Even if everyone falls away, I will not. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to him, Today, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he kept insisting, If I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And they all said the same thing. Then they came to a place called Gethsemane, and he told his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. He said to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake. He went a little further, fell to the ground, and prayed that if it were possible the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, All things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Couldn't you stay awake one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once again, he went away and prayed, saying the same thing. And again, he came and found them sleeping because they could not keep their eyes open. They did not know what to say to him. Then he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The time has come. See, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let's go. See, my betrayer is near. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, suddenly arrived. With him was a mob with swords and clubs from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. His betrayer had given them a signal. The one I kiss, he said, he's the one. Arrest him and take him away under guard. So when he came, immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. They took hold of him and arrested him. One of those who stood by drew his sword, struck the high priest's servant, and cut off his ear. Jesus said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a criminal to capture me? Every day I was among you teaching in the temple, and you didn't arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then they all deserted him and ran away. Now a certain young man, wearing nothing but a linen cloth, was following him. They caught hold of him, but he left the linen cloth behind and ran away naked. They led Jesus away to the high priest and all the chief priests, the elders and the scribes, assembled. Peter followed him at a distance right into the high priest's courtyard. He was sitting with the servants, warming himself by the fire. The chief priests in the whole Sanhedrin were looking for testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they could not find any. For many were giving false testimony against him, and the testimonies did not agree. Some stood up and gave false testimony against him, stating, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days I will build another not made by human hands. Yet their testimony did not even agree on this. Then the high priest stood up before them all and questioned Jesus, "'Don't you have an answer to what these men are testifying about you?' But he kept silent and did not answer. Again the high priest questioned him, "'Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One?' "'I am,' said Jesus, "'and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power "'and coming with the clouds of heaven.' Then the high priest tore his robes and said, "'Why do we still need witnesses? "'You've heard the blasphemy!' What is your decision? They all condemned him as deserving death. Then some began to spit on him, to blindfold him, and to beat him, saying, Prophesy. The temple servants also took him and slapped him. While Peter was in the courtyard below, one of the high priest's maidservants came. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus, the man from Nazareth? But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you are talking about. Then he went out to the entryway, and a rooster crowed. When the maid servant saw him again, she began to tell those standing nearby, This man is one of them. But again he denied it, and after a while, those standing there said to Peter again, You, you certainly are one of them, since you are also a Galilean. Then he started to curse and swear, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately a rooster crowed a second time, and remembered when And Peter remembered when Jesus had spoken the word to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Acts chapter 19, verse 1. While Apollos was in Corinth, Paul traveled through the interior regions and came to Ephesus. He found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? No, they told him. We haven't even heard that there was a Holy Spirit. Into what were you baptized? He asked them. Into John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, telling the people that they should believe in the one who had come after him. That is Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on him, On them the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began to speak in tongues and to prophesy. Now there were about twelve men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly over a period of three months, arguing and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became hardened and would not believe, slandering the way in front of the crowd, he withdrew from them, taking the disciples, and conducted discussions every day in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years, so that all the residents of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. God was performing extraordinary miracles by Paul's hands, so that even face cloths or aprons that had touched his skin were brought to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Now some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists also attempted to pronounce the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I command you by the Paul, by the Jesus that Paul preaches. Seven sons of Sceva, a high priest, were doing this. The evil spirit answered them, I know Jesus and I recognize Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, overpowered them all, and prevailed against them so that they ran out of the house naked and wounded. When this became known to everyone who lived in Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, they became afraid, And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high esteem. And many who had become believers came confessing and disclosing their practices, while many of those who had practiced magic collected their books and burned them in front of everyone. So they calculated their value and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. In this way, the word of the Lord spread and prevailed. After these events, Paul resolved by the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem. After I've been there, he said, it is necessary for me to see Rome as well. After sending to Macedonia two of those who assisted him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there was a major disturbance about the way, for a person named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, provided a great deal of businessmen, business for the craftsmen. When he had assembled them, as well as the workers engaged in this type of business, he said, Men, you know that our prosperity is derived from this business. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this man Paul has persuaded and misled a considerable number of people by saying that God's made by hand are not God's. Not only do we run a risk that our business may be discredited, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be despised, and her magnificence come to the verge of ruin, the very one all of Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were filled with rage and began to cry out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they all rushed together into the amphitheater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's traveling companions. Although Paul wanted to go in before the people, the disciples did not let him. Even some of the provincial officials of Asia, who were his friends, sent word to him, pleading with him not to venture into the amphitheater. Some were shouting one thing and some another because the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not even know why they had come together. Some Jews in the crowd gave instructions to Alexander after they pushed him to the front, motioning him with his hand. Alexander wanted to make his defense to the people, but when they recognized that he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! When the city clerk had calmed the crowd down, he said, People of Ephesus, what person is there who doesn't know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple guardian of the great Artemis and of the image that fell from heaven? Therefore, since these things are undeniable, you must keep calm and not do anything rash. For you have brought these men here who are not temple robbers or blasphemers of our goddess. So if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a case against anyone, the courts are in session and they are procouncils. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it must be decided in a legal assembly. In fact, we run a risk of being charged with rioting for what happened today, since there's no justification that we can give as a reason for this disturbance. After saying this, he dismissed the assembly. Well, friends, may the Lord give you a wonderful Saturday and an even more wonderful Lord's Day. Good day to you and Godspeed.